Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Now, at the end of January, we did an episode on the fascinating topic of Babylon, covering the best-known period in the city's history from the great king Nebuchadnezzar onwards. And lots of people really seem to enjoy it. And as it's got such a fascinating and impossibly old prehistory, Tom, we said that we would have to revisit the earlier period we to did. do it justice. And yes, we did. We are men of our word, are we not? We always are. So we stand at the gates of the Esagila, ready to dive into the roots of ancient Babylon. If you want to know what we're talking about, go and have a look at the, the old podcast on Babylon in the Age of Nebuchadnezzar. But let us now go into the gates and let's start in the most basic possible way. We had a question from somebody called First Captain. And First Captain said, basically, what was Babylon? When was it founded? Who lived there? And who ruled it? I mean, obviously, well, that that's covers the basis. Quite, quite a long time. Yeah. But, but in the very, very broadest terms, what are we talking about, Tom? Well, there's, there's another question as well that I think goes well with that from Eric Ware. How did Babylon, a relative latecomer, make itself into the cultural epicentre of ancient Mesopotamia to the extent of even giving its own name to the whole region, i.e. Babylonia, which which kind of focuses again on this idea that, that Babylon, although to us it seems incredibly ancient, actually is, relatively speaking, a latecomer. So it, it's founded shortly after 2000 BC, it seems to have been. In, but the, in modern-day Iraq. In what is modern-day Iraq. Uh, on the, the the banks of the Euphrates, um, and you have these two great rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris. So hence the Greek word for it, Mesopotamia, between the rivers. Right. Um, and because the, these rivers, as with Egypt and the Nile, it's the rivers that give birth to urban civilization. And the first great cities in Mesopotamia are 2,000 years before the founding of Babylon. So they ran 4,000 so 4, BC. 4,000, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's kind of one of those kind of, you know, People always say we are closer to Cleopatra than Cleopatra was to the building of the pyramids. And it kind of makes your head swim. Yeah. In, in a similar way, you know, we, Babylon was, we are as close to the final kind of end of Babylon as, as a great urban center, as the Babylonians in their earliest days were to the beginnings of urban civilization. So we're talking about incredible, incredible depths of time. So yes, looking at sort of recorded history, Babylon is in the midpoint. Yeah, in a way in a way um, yes it's the middle ages i mean in you know in 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 terms of iraqi history and middle eastern history yeah yeah babylon is kind of the middle age i mean it's a kind of incredible thought and, and um, the babylonians have a sense of so the have time they they know that people have come before them and there have been civilizations before them presumably well so in a sense there are kind of they they have two ways of seeing it the kind of the mythical understanding of it that that, that the babylonians have have arrived at by let's say the 6th century bc which is the heyday of the great city that was being portrayed in my children's books um that that people probably have a sense in their mind of the ishtar gate and the hanging gardens and all that yeah. kind of thing you know the great city of nebuchadnezzar um so they had a sense that um 
that in a way Babylon, so the Esagila, which is the home of Marduk, that who, who by the sixth century BC has has been enshrined as the king of the gods, that this is his home. It's the first building to be built. It's um, Babylon is the first city that it's been built by by some of the kind of the more junior gods as a prize for the greater gods. Um, and it's part of the kind of primordial story of 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 creation. So so yeah. Marduk in this story, he, there's a there's a great kind of sea serpent. He's killed it. He's cut it in two. He's made heaven and earth out of that. And then the gods um, are bored of having to do the work, and so Marduk creates humans to do the work instead of the gods. So Babylon is the first great city for humans, and that's the kind of the sacred story, right? And and in a sense, the Esagila stands at the heart of Babylon and Babylon stands at the heart of both the universe and of time. So it's absolutely at the kind of the heart of, of, um, of temporal and geographical space. Okay. But that's another, yeah. I mean, it wasn't uh, really founded by Marduk. No. So, so, so simultaneous with that, they also have a sense of, uh, the, the, the very, very distant past indeed. Um, and this manifests itself in various ways. So right from the beginning, they they are looking. They seem to be looking back to um, to a guy called Sargon, who rules a city called Akkad. Yeah, and we're not quite sure where Akkad was. Consensus now probably is that it was on the Tigris, but it's possible that it was actually on the Euphrates and maybe on the site of Babylon itself. But the the reason that Sargon is remembered, he's this kind of um, this great conqueror who, for the first time. Uh, up until that point, Mesopotamia essentially has been an agglomeration of city-states, so a bit like Greece will be. Yeah, and Sargon conquers them all and is remembered as the ruler of the first great empire. So he's yeah the world's first emperor. Yeah, right? yeah, and Akkad is remembered as the kind of archetype of an imperial city. So rather than being self-sufficient, it's a city that is based on tribute and plunder. And so therefore, it's a city that is um, full of foreigners. It's full of exotic animals. Um, it's cosmopolitan in a way that uh, in due course, Babylon will become as well. So uh, it's kind of prototype in some ways for what Babylon will, will be in the yeah, world's imagination. Absolutely. Uh, and so the early kings of Babylon are ruling in the kind of same area that 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 Sargon was ruling Akkad. And so they kind of look back to Sargon as a kind of legitimizing figure. I mean, it's a bit like, I suppose, uh, Charlemagne perhaps looking back to Constantine or something like, you know, the line of descent is not a clear one, but it's one that the, the early yeah. kings of Babylon want to evoke. And this, this then endures right the way through. So the, the Babylonians are obsessed with learning, with the past. There's a massive kind of antiquarian strain and right up to the end of it. So Nabonidus, who is the last kind of native king of Babylon, uh, he rules before the Persians conquer it. You know, that, that's the end of Babylonian independence, effectively. Um, but he is he's a massive antiquarian. Um, so he goes away and we'll probably come to why he goes away. But he it's report reports reach him that um, people have dug up a statue of Sargon of Akkad and he comes yeah. rushing back. He's so excited. He wants to have a look at it. <laughs> um, and uh, he has um, he has a daughter who's a princess. Ennegaldi Nana. Good, good pronunciation, Tom. Thank you very much. And she, it, it, it seems, so this is what Leonard Woolley, the great British archaeologist, is excavating Ur, much, yeah. much older city than, um, than, than Babylon. And obviously, the, in a sense, the Babylonians kind of remember that. And she seems to have constructed a, a museum of antiquities at Ur. So oh. when they were found, 
you know, the, the, these are antiquities that are, you know, reaching back to the beginnings of Mesopotamian history. And the, the most, the, the greatest thing is that they seem to have had kind of little, um, you know, notes explaining them. So the very first kind of museum captions explaining what, what a collection of antiquities are. So, you you know, right at the end of Babylonian independence, you get the sense that people absolutely at the top, the royal family. And that's what, yeah, that's they, by the princess. The princess writes the captions. She seems to have done, yeah. I mean, she, so well, I don't like, know whether um, she personally did, but she it, it, it's her museum. Right. So it's a bit like if, you know, Princess Anne or yeah. uh, Carrie Johnson had <laughs> were setting up their own museums about Athelstan, Tom. Exactly. Yes, or or kind of the Neolithic or something with stone axes or something like that. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's so it's um, and the Babylonians can do that because they um are a deeply literate society. Okay. Um, and so I mentioned the the, the Greeks and the the Jews. So Herodotus, um, the great his first great historian, and the writers of, of what Christians call the Old Testament, the Tanakh for Jews, um. And that is the inheritance that the people in the West have had. So that's what essentially has always determined our, you know, our understanding of what Babylon looked like. But in the 19th century, archaeologists went there and they discovered all these kind of tablets with what, what came to be called cuneiform. And the language got cracked. And now there are, the, the, I think that the, the total volume of writings by Babylonians and by Assyrians, who have the, the great power to the north, who we'll also be talking about, um, is equivalent to the entire corpus of Latin literature. So, wow. it's, so it's there's in, tons of stuff. There is tons and tons of stuff. So we've, we've got the Greek and the, and the Jewish writings that are now supplemented by the writings of the Babylonians and the Assyrians themselves. And so therefore, over the past, whatever, 150, 170 years, it's been possible for people to, to have a much, much better sense of what the history of Babylon was before the kind of the great days of Nebuchadnezzar in the sixth century, right the way back to, to, to the beginnings of it. Um, okay. Let me take you back to the beginning, Tom. Um, so you've had Akkad. We don't exactly know where that is. That's about, what is that? Uh, 2,300 years before the birth of Christ. Um, and then... Babylon seems to have been founded, if I'm right, about four centuries later in the yeah. 19th century BC or so, so 1900 years before the birth of Christ. And the man who founds it, I believe, is called <laughs> Samu Abum. Is that is that right? Am I pronounce, pronouncing that correctly? I, I don't know, but I always I've always thought of him as Sumo Abum, just because okay. it seems funnier. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, and uh, now, who is he, and and who are the people that found it? Are they just well, he, local he's... farmers, or what's the story? No, he so he is an Amorite. <laughs> Say that again, Amorite. So uh, that's a kind of um, bloke. He's an Amorite for, for uh, more <laughs> elevated listeners. Yeah, he, he runs a flower stall in uh, in the East End. Um, <laughs> so the Amorites are yeah. um, they are Semitic speakers, probably from Syria. They're they're mentioned in the Bible, so maybe in in Canaan as well. And they're the kind of classic guys who, right from the beginning of time, right from the beginning of civilization, have kind of operated on the fringes of uh, urban society. Okay. So, you know, this is the story that, that just repeats and repeats and repeats itself. Um, and essentially, whenever they get a scent of, of, of weakness, you know, they come in. So it's the same story as you get with the Arabs, you know, in the seventh century. Uh, and the Amorites come in and they they either take over what had been a kind of a village or a small town or they, they, they found it or whatever, but they establish um, a, a city and they establish a monarchy. 
because it's pretty fundamental to the way that the Mesopotamians see the world that you have to have a king. Is Everything the king is, is a representative of the gods, or the king is em- embodiment of some divine order, or what? Uh, he's the kind of interface between humans and the gods, uh, and he is the he, he's the guy who can be guaranteed to protect his subjects from war, to give them justice, to ensure that the, the correct rituals are carried out so that the gods won't get cross. Um, and you you have all this, say, what's called wisdom literature. It's um, kind of pithy sentiments that people are encouraged to recommend, to, to, to bear in mind. And again and again, you get these kind of ideas that... Um, so there's this, this, this one that's kind of written about 2500 BC. You should submit to the strong man. You should humble yourself before the man who wields power. So it's very kind of Putin friendly. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, there's, the, the idea is, is that, that there's a big man and you should basically do what he says. Thomas Hobbes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it, hopefully he will then look after you and give you justice you yes. know, if, if you're poor. But, but obedience is there. So, so, so Babylon is a city that is also a, a monarchy. Um, and Samu Abum is the, the first king? He's the first one that we know of. And here's a, a crucial question that's going to run through this podcast. How do we know about him? How do we, well, we know, know about, about it through, through these cuneiform tablets. We know there are kind of king lists, as you get in Egypt. Um, right. So there is this vast kind of corpus of material that scholars are working their way through right now. I mean, you know, there, there's loads and loads that haven't been read. And this is the 19th century BC. And do we have any sense, Tom, of what that city... Well, first, I, I mean, I know this is in many ways an impossible question. So is it on the bank? It's on the banks of the, of the river, Euphrates. Of yeah. the Euphrates. Um, it's We're talking about it as a city, but at this stage, presumably it's what we would now see as a town, as a town, right? I mean, it, it's not... It's really difficult to know because there's almost no trace of it. I mean, actually, there's literally no trace of it because, because um, I think there's, there's kind of... There was a... a, a Several people asked, um, you know, what, what what is left of Babylon? One of the problems with this, say, unlike Egypt, where you have things built of stone, there isn't really any stone available. So stone is a very, very precious commodity in Mesopotamia. So instead, they make things out of baked mud bricks. Right. So hence my magnificent opening in, in Persian fire. Everything is made of mud. That's yeah. how... So all these kind of great monuments, the Ishtar Gate, everything is made out of baked mud bricks that are baked really, really hard. But the problem with them is, is that they kind of melt away. So you have this thing over the course of Mesopotamian history. So the great ziggurats, which are the kind of stepped, great step temples, they they kind of melt away like kind of chocolate cakes left in the rain. Yeah. And and so then what um what what people do is they just kind of build over the top of them. Um, and you again and again, you get this sense that that cities rise up, they collapse, and they get rebuilt. So the Esagila, for instance, I mean, that does seem to be properly ancient. That does seem to have, to, you know, this shrine that becomes the great shrine of Marduk. That does seem to to originate in the beginnings of Babylon, which is why it's commemorated as the oldest building, not just in Babylon, but in the world in due course. But it's um, it gets destroyed. I mean, we know it gets destroyed. Yeah. And then they rebuild it. So yeah. in what sense is it? But does that, do they have a sense, Tom, from the very beginning that uh, life, human history, time is a saga of kind of, uh, it's a cycle of, of destruction and rebirth. Is that built into the Yeah, they have a the cyclical, they, I think they have a cyclical sense of time. Uh, but they also have a sense that um, 
everything can kind of so so babylon becomes famous as a city of of sorcerers of astronomers of astrologers and the idea yeah. that um the past and the future are written in the heavens and that therefore the, the what is happening on the earthly stage of babylon is reflecting and reflective of what is happening in the heavens is also a crucial part of the way that the the babylonians understand themselves so they feel that the city is not just a city you know it's not kind of the equivalent of basingstoke this is this is it's sacred it's at the center of things and it's that that animates the babylonians and over the course of their two you know 2000 years of history other people come to accept that and so the story of how that happens is also really really interesting and it's first tied up with one of the heirs of uh, Sumo Abam who I yeah. prefer to call him the famous Hammer Rabbi well, just a quick note. If you are from Basingstoke and you do think your city has a divine <laughs> significance, I apologize. Um, right in, Tom, let us know. <laughs> but yeah, but Tom, uh, so Hammurabi or whatever you, what did yeah. you call him? Hammurabi. Hammurabi. Um, I think the, the diversity of pronunciations is one of the great joys <laughs> the strengths of, this of this podcast. Yeah. Um, so we've moved on 100 years or so from the 200 years, maybe from the foundation of the city, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and now it's becoming under Hammurabi or whatever you want to call him. Am I right in thinking it's becoming more of an imperial power, taking over other towns, cities? Yes. Nearby? So, so this is where the the kind of comparison with Sargon comes in. Is that Hammurabi is a great conqueror? Yeah, uh, he bides his time, and then he seems to have basically just kind of gone berserk, uh, and he conquers this great empire that basically embraces most of um, certainly southern Mesopotamia. Uh, reaching up to, in towards Syria. Um, and, you know, so he's a great conqueror. But the other reason that he's remembered is that he's a great lawgiver. Well, there's the code, isn't there? And this yeah. is one of the foundational documents in some ways of, well, it's one of the, the first great documents of human history, isn't it? It's, it if you is. were doing a sort of compilation of top documents, this is this is often number one or two in the list. It is. Uh, although whether it, it's a law code in the way that we would understand it is much debated. Um you know, and this is kind of part of the fascination and the frustration of ancient history is that you get you get a great chunk of writing and you don't yeah. have the context that necessarily enables you to to work out uh, quite you know, how, how do you frame it. Um, so it could be a kind of, you know, a law code as we would understand it, a, a kind of systematic body of law, uh, or it could be um, a collection of royal rulings. Um, right. Or it could be a kind of an accounting from the king to the gods of everything that he's done. And what sort of things are in it? Well, it's written very kind of poetically. Yeah. So uh, just to reiterate, it's not the kind of thing that you would get, you know, kind of bill of parliament or anything like that. Um, it features a lot of boasting from the king. Um, so the king, I, I stand head and shoulders above other kings. Um, my words are basically brilliant. Um, I'm absolutely, I have no rival in terms of my diligence. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff. That's you talking, Tom, about no, the not at all. Not at all, Dominic, not at all. Um, there's a, a lot of stuff about uh, marriages. Right. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about inheritance. Um, the, the, there's a sense that uh, the king is upholding the laws and the frameworks and he's he's kind of um socializing people right so that, that there are there are set rules that people should follow and he is he is kind of enshrined you know he's delivering them and that these serve the causes of justice as understood by the gods i mean that's basically what it is and 
I think that um, the, there's a kind of there's a there's a temptation on our behalf to kind of identify it with the understanding of law that we have that I think should should probably yeah. be resisted because it's always kind of it, it, it's weirder and stranger and more distant than that. Fair enough. Um, what about Hammurabi himself, Tom? Because Liam Boyd had a question. He said, uh, "Is Hammurabi a leader who could be considered a great man of history?" successful both militarily and administratively and changed the religious and political landscape of Mesopotamia. So we, our very first podcast of this entire series was about greatness. Is Hammurabi, is he one of these people who is seen as a sort of a, a titanic, a, a genuinely titanic figure, or is that just an accident because of the sources we have that, that reflect well on him? He sees himself as a titanic figure. He sees himself pretty clearly as the heir of Sargon, who's the archetype of a great man. Right. Um, and Mesopotamia is absolutely society that 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 believes in great men i mean great kings yeah. so by that absolutely by that standard he's a great conqueror and he's a great lawgiver um you know and by our standards as well i mean he's a you know that's a kind of napoleonic record uh, but rather like napoleon his empire then is, crumbles it crumbles and it crumbles yeah. when he dies basically after he dies yeah pretty much think? yeah pretty much in in, in uh, yeah pretty much so it's very much a personal creation rather than a kind of institutional one his empire do you think I, well, well, I think I think at this point, so, so as Sargon had done, Hammurabi is is conquering city states that regard themselves as being naturally independent. Right. So again, it's it's a bit like the Macedonians conquering the city states of Greece, but the city states don't like it. They're kind of constantly trying to throw off, you know, the yoke. Um, and essentially, after Hammurabi's life, Babylon reverts back to being Basingstoke. Uh, you know. <laughs> Gosh, you know, you've got really got it in for Basingstoke or Reading or whatever. I mean, it's 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 a kind of it, you know it's a wealthy, prosperous, slightly yeah. provincial place okay. with that has had its moment in the sun, but now has kind of retreated again. Um, and you know, for several centuries, we don't really know what's going on. Well, it, which it, is it, it's on the receiving end, right? I mean, it gets uh, attacked by the Hittites. Who are another sort of so yes. mysterious people, aren't they? Anatolian, the Hittites, I think, are they? Is that yes, right? so, for, so, so from what's now Turkey, and they establish a, a kind of a, a massive empire. Um, and the Hittites do something that I think will become a bit of a theme. <laughs> yes. So they steal or confiscate a statue of Marduk. Now, what's all that about? Tell me, explain to me about the statue of Marduk and why basically people keep stealing it. But before you answer that, actually, Tom, hold on, we will take a break. Uh, we'll go and admire our own statues of Marduk and we'll be back in just a few minutes. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, Tom, you were about to explain why they keep stealing the statue of Marduk. So Marduk, um, as we've mentioned, is enshrined in the Esagila. Uh, according to legend, he he builds the Esagila himself. Obviously, that didn't happen, and he constructs his own statue. Um, he he. I mean, he sought literally to live there uh, right. with his wife. Literally, so it's not symbolic. Uh, no, he's literally, he literally lives there. He lives there with his wife, so there's a statue of her as well. Um, their son, who has a house outside town every year is brought in so it's kind of like he's you know coming back from university or something yeah to bring stay it, with to his bring parents his washing with him <laughs> bring all his washing with him um Marduk, Marduk is the kind of the patron of babylon but he's nothing really more than that at this point but therefore he's kind of like the symbol of babylon so if yeah. you conquer babylon and you steal marduk you're removing its great patron um right. and Therefore, as you say, this is a, a this is something that punctuates the history because every time Babylon gets captured, the the, the people who've done it nick the statue of Marduk. So, so, a quick question, Tom, just to interrupt. So, when these people steal the statue, I may, maybe the answer to this is unknowable. Do they think they are literally stealing the god, or are they merely stealing a symbol of the god? I think it's hard to know with the Hittites because they're from a, a, a culturally a very different um, society. But I think when you have, so in due course, say the Assyrians, who become the great rivals of, of the Babylonians, that they're bred of the same cultural matrix. And the Assyrians look to Babylon as you know, the, the great cultural center of the world. They kind of take Babylon at its own estimation. Yeah. And so therefore, when they steal the statue of Marduk, yes, absolutely, they feel that they're taking the god. And they're nervous about it because they feel that they're potentially committing sacrilege. But I think the Hittites don't think that. I mean, the, the right. Hittites, it's kind of like the Romans stealing the, you know, the treasures of the temple when they sacked Jerusalem. It's, it's a way to humiliate and, yeah. and rub the noses of, of the conquered in the, in the ashes of their defeat. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, ba- Babylon is left kind of traumatized by that. And so they get taken over by, after that, by a, a mysterious people called the Kassites. And who on earth? This is, I'll be frank, this is the first I've ever heard of the Kassites. Who are they? Well, they're very obscure. They speak a language that no, it's kind of a bit like Basque. It it doesn't seem to be Semitic. It doesn't seem to, you know, it doesn't bear any relationship to any of the kind of languages that are being spoken. They don't, they don't play pelota and pride themselves on their pinchos, presumably. Well, so no, but they 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 become although they end up becoming very very Babylonian. So they become more Babylonian than the Babylonians. Oh. They they become great great patrons of you know, everything that ties the Babylonians into their history. Um, so this is very, a very example of the invader who is assimilated 
and yes. takes on the the, the 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 culture of the conquered people basically yeah so so again it's it's charlemagne sponsoring uh monks writing out the latin classics yeah it, it, that that's exactly what it is um and they they rule babylon for about 400 years and this is the period uh, so we took we had Akhen- we talked about akhenaten in the, the the episode we did about tutankhamun and that period and akhenaten is one of um the ruler of of uh four superpowers so um the hittites who we've mentioned yeah egypt itself of course um uh, uh, people called the mitanni who are the kind of buffer kingdom between mesopotamia and the hittites and then babylon and so akhenaten so we, we have all these kind of tablets um from his capital amarna in which uh akhenaten is writing to kind of various foreign kings and babylon the king of babylon is one of the three other kings that he he, he describes as brother right um which would do if it was a minor kingdom presumably. yeah and his and akhenaten's dad uh amenhotep the third this the kind of the sun king uh anyone who's been to the british museum seen that great kind of portrait bust with the enigmatic smile that's amenhotep the third and he marries a daughter of the king of babylon so um there's this kind of network of, of you know, the superpowers of the Near East. Uh, yeah. And Babylon Babylon is up there. What I love about doing this subject, just to interrupt, is the Kassites. So the Kassites are just an episode of Babylonian history, but but they, they ruled for 400, 400 years. years. I, I mean, they ruled for twice as long as the United States has existed. Yeah, and to think we spend hours going through the Jeremy Thorpe scandal, <laughs> and then we just dismiss the Kassites in, you know. I know. I they're know. only there for 400 years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And And important things are happening because it's under the Kassites that um you start to get a sense um so again to to, to go back to where it where's question um how did it end up giving its a name to the whole region it's it's under the Kassites that this process happens that this agglomeration of independent city states start to be absorbed into something that that is called babylonia and at this stage tom do we have any sense of babylon the place how many people live there what it looks like or again is the, as the mud really. has melted the mud has melted. There, there, you know, there are kind of, um, so there are uh, clay tablets on which there are drawings, illustrations, um, but they're, they're symbolic. And so it's difficult to know exactly how, how credibly they should be taken. Right. Um, I think it's very, very difficult to get a sense of what, what the city's like. Okay. Um, but but Fair it's enough. it's it's a great capital. Uh, it's yeah. a great capital. It 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 clearly has the kind of architectural heft that a great capital should have because um, we we know this because um, at twelve fifty the Assyrians enter the enter the the fun and they are they are what we would now call more northern Iraq. Assyrians, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's up Mosul, Kurdistan, that kind of area. And their capital is Assur? Their capital is Assur. But you think, so, so when the Islamic State swept in and occupied it, they they were notorious for kind of destroying Assyrian statues and, and cities and so on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, so northern Iraq, basically. Um, and the, the Assyrians are, I think, the most terrifying of all the ancient empires. I mean, right. ha- having them as a neighbor, it's it's like having a kind of angry hornet next to you, because basically their approach to imperialism is to it's it's quite brutal. There's quite a lot of beheadings and impalings and yeah. destruction and transplantation of peoples. Um, 
this is particularly true of the kind of the later uh, manifestation of the Assyrian Empire, but even the early one, they're 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 not fun <laughs> to, to have as your neighbours. So when the Assyrians attack Babylon, they they kind of it's kind of like they're attacking mummy, you know. Okay, this, this is they they see it as a very important, very significant city to which they they owe a lot, but that doesn't in any way stop them from. <laughs> Well, so I'm absolutely pulverizing it. So it's the vandals so, sacking Rome, let's say, or something like that. Is it? Is that maybe the analogy? Uh, I think it's. More, I, I think they're they're more like Macedon to, to to classical Greece. Okay, perhaps it's that kind of relationship. They're seen by the Babylonians as northern brutes and barbarians. Uh, the Assyrians see themselves as having a kind of commonality with the Babylonians, but at the same time, they're 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 slightly chippy. Um, right. Like throw their weight around, yeah. um, and so the, the Assyrians attack Babylon. Um, you get this great thing from the Assyrian king saying, I captured the king of Babylon. I trod with my foot upon his lordly neck as though it were a footstool. And inevitably, they steal the, the statue of Marduk. <laughs> of course they do. Uh, but they don't hold on to it, do they? Don't they give it no, back? What they do, do they Because they, they see it as they, they're worried that they've committed sacrilege by removing it. Right. So, and they so that, all that I, effort of taking it up, presumably in a great ceremonial hullabaloo, and then they sneak it back or take it back, or we don't know, I suppose, do we? I think they're afraid of the king. I mean, they're, they're, they're afraid of Marduk. They're afraid that they have uh, kind of blasphemed that that by laying their their hands on the god and removing him from his home. Yeah, you know it's. And Marduk is just the god of Babylon. He well, has he start... spread, or has he spread? He's starting to. He's becoming more and more important. He's and he's get... one of a whole constellation of gods. Yes. Um, so that there are lots of gods, um, but Marduk is kind of gradually going up the league table. Right. So, the, so the, the the longer Babylon endures, yeah, the more prestigious it becomes, uh, the more of a kind of cultural heft it has. So the more it seems obvious, both to the Babylonians, but then also to people who are starting to think of themselves as belonging to a place called Babylonia, that Marduk, you know, I mean, he can't just be the god of Babylon. I mean, he has to be king of the gods surely so it's a kind of gradual slow process of promotion right yes it's it's sort of the soft power yes it, absolutely extent. yes uh and babylon is actually on the receiving end a lot at this point because then in 1176 bc i think so we're basically what 75 years later it is sacked again <laughs> no. um this time by the elam a terrible time so elam are, we, are you going to pronounce it elam or something no elam uh, is good yeah. elam um where's where's elam so that's it. That's um, uh, in Iran. So these right. are hordes of Ali Ansaris descending, right? And they are much less respectful, and they they inevitably nick the, the statue of Marduk. <laughs> of course they do, but they they also steal the famous law code of Hammurabi and they take it back to to Susa, their capital. Yeah. Um, and you know it's a great trophy, and and that is where it gets then subsequently much late, much much later, gets found by French archaeologists. Who then take it to the Louvre? Oh. So there's these cycles of looting, of but also of kind of archaeological fascination yeah. with the past. So in that sense, the French who who found it were, were truly the heirs of of Babylon. So, so at that I think, point, I mean, actually, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the when the Elamites take the the law code of Hammurabi, that is, I'm just working that out. That that they're they're six seven hundred years on. From that, so I mean that that to them is an artifact as old. Oh, yeah. as, I mean even longer as a as a yeah. as a a, a, a medieval you yeah. know Plantagenet thing would be to us. 
especially like taking Magna Carta or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's. I mean, they can't even read it, presumably. I think they probably can. Really? Well, because it's the lingua franca. But it's surely evolved in the intervening 700 years or whatever. No, because there's there's a kind of conscious antiquarianism. So if you have a Babylonian scribe, he'll be able to read it. So it's Um, as though it were in Latin, basically. It's a kind of lingua franca and it has an antiquarian prestige. No, because it's not a completely different language. It's the same language. Right. And and so Babylonian kings are writing stuff in in way I, you know it's like us using thee or thou or something in a you know in a document yeah um, it's, fair enough it's it, it's kind of got an antique feel but definitely you can read it now Tom in the notes that you sent me because Tom very kindly sent me a whole load of notes because he thought I was utterly incapable of, of <laughs> informing myself about Babylon and, and to be fair you were actually right it says it says in the notes I don't know if this is you or it looks like you're quoting somebody. From now until the period of the Syrian supremacy in the 8th century BC, the country was ruled by six politically unimportant dynasties. I just so, thought that was very funny as yeah. a way of... So again, you know, you were saying that 400 years of... So, so, so the Elamites, when they sacked Babylon, they, they also transport the last of the Kassite kings. So that's terminus for the Kassites. Yeah. And so now suddenly you've got you know, six politically unimportant dynasties. That's, I mean, that's like you know, four, 500 years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well, it's not quite. It's not yeah. quite because um, actually, about fifty years after the sack, you you get the first guy to be called Nebuchadnezzar pops up on the scene. Is he Nebuchadnezzar or is he Nebuchadrezzar? Well, same same difference. Okay, fair enough. He's only king for what is he king for? Twenty twenty years, twenty one years. Yeah, but he does quite a lot in that time because he wants to get Marduk back. Right. So so he he attacks Elam and yeah. they get hit by the plague. So that's not good. So he has to withdraw. And then he attacks again in the high summer. And everyone who's followed the Iraq war will know how hot it gets. And there's this incredible description from one of the, the cuneiform tablets where it, it describes how the axes in the soldiers' hands burn like fire and the road surfaces scorch like flame. You know, so you real incredible yeah. sense of, of, of the heat. But this is, he, he's able to um, surprise the Elamites he gets Marduk back, and this is really the point from which Marduk is being enshrined as as top dog. As and, as and on the one. tablets, Tom. I mean, that description that you read out. What is that? Is that a history? Is it a? Um, what, what are they writing? There's there's a lot of boasting <laughs> that goes that goes on in ancient Mesopotamia. The guys who really really boast about um, all their victories and stuff are the Assyrians. So they're always going on about, we sacked this, I impaled this king, I chopped off his head and hung it from a tree. Um, I destroyed the city and transported all the people. A yeah. uh, lot of boasting. Um, you know, they, they do it not just in written form, but in uh, you know, freezes. So again, in the British Museum, they have these incredible illustrations of the Assyrian army at work. Terrifying. Babylonians are, Babylonian kings are generally keener on boasting about how many buildings they've put up. So that's what they really like to go on about. Yeah. But, you know, there's a bit of boasting about all the stuff that they've done as well. Well, they so, should be pleased so, with themselves. I mean, they've got the statue back. Yeah, absolutely. And presumably yeah. to them, um, not having the statue means that they're in some way mutilated, ideologically mutilated. They need the statue because Marduk they do. Is, the, is the god and, you know, without yes. him, they can't be whole. Yes, um, so they've got absolutely. him back. But they don't then go on to, you know, to, to, to dominate the, the region, do they? Because then the Assyrians are the big men again. Is that right? Or the yes. Assyrians that maybe have been the big power all through this time. Well, they've had, they've had, they've had, they've gone kind of into eclipse, and now they've come back again. And this is the period that that everyone who's familiar with the Bible will know, where 
they're, they're just kind of you know just like the wolf on the fold yeah uh, they're, they're terrifying and you don't want to mess with them uh the advantage that babylon has is that you know the assyrians respect babylon you know they they, they see it as the cultural capital of the world so the, there's there's a lot of respect um but then <laughs> the babylonians make the mistake of of launching a full scale revolt um and they 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 ally themselves with the elamites who have now become their friends right so they've forgiven the elamites for the previous they've forgiven the elamites exactly theft of so marduk yeah um and they, they're facing the, the assyrian army the, the most frightening in the world and the king of elam gets lockjaw Gosh. so he can't he can't he can't, can't shut his mouth it. Well, but so, it's hard to shout out orders, right? Or to engage in complicated <laughs> tactical discussions. Yeah, it's the last thing you want when the Assyrians so like James II towards... and his nosebleed during the Glorious yes. Revolution. Yeah, so so he doesn't come because he's kind of... Rah, rah, rah. So... <laughs> That's my favourite of all your impersonations, is the, the, the king, king of Elam. Elam. Yeah. So, so he's... Uh, and so the Babylonians are left to face the Assyrians on their own. Oh, and they've got they've got obviously got massive walls, so they they're able to hold out, and they last for fifteen months, and then the city falls. Oh. And have you got and an exciting description of the fall of the city? I have. So this is the Assyrian king Sennacherib. So uh, Sennacherib, um, and this is this is kind of classic Assyrian boasting. This is the kind of stuff that Assyrian kings went in for. I destroyed the city and its houses from foundation to parapet. I devastated and burned them. I raised the brick and earthenwork of the outer and inner wall of the city of the temples of the ziggurat. I dumped these into the canal. I dug canals through the midst of that city. I overwhelmed it with water. I made its very foundations disappear and I destroyed it more completely than a devastating flood so that it might be impossible in future days to recognize the site of that city and its temples. I utterly dissolved it with water and made it like inundated land. So that, Dominic, is the answer to your question about why we... We have yeah. no real idea about what the city of Hammurabi was like. Sennacherib is not a sentimental man, I would guess. No, and inevitably he steals something. And... Does he take the uh, statue of Marduk? By any <laughs> he, does. he does. <laughs> he does. And what's he, he does. when they take the statue? What do they do with it? They take it back in great honor. And yeah. uh, again, this is this is important. Um, they Sennacherib goes back to Assyria. He says, "I've destroyed Babylon, so now." Babylon is in Assyria. So I think he takes the statue of Marduk to Asa or Nineveh. I can't remember which one, but one, right. of, one of the great cities of Assyria. And he says, this is, um, actually, I think it's Nineveh. And he says, Nineveh is now Babylon. So we basically lay claim to their historical legacy and their god. And... Absolutely. So Marduk gets enshrined in Nineveh and basically it's kind of new Babylon. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's, he's laying claim to, you know, all the inheritance of Babylon. However, the Assyrians clearly, again, feel bad about this. They feel they feel nervous about it. Um, and his son, um, Esarhaddon, yeah. who has a Babylonian wife, he, he restores the statue of Marduk um, and he starts kind of uh, sponsoring the rebuilding of it. Um, and he has two sons, uh, one of them, a guy called Shamash Shuma Ukin, that's crazy name. name, crazy guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, who becomes the king of Babylon. Right. And then he has a, a younger son, but but who is not the son of a Babylonian wife. So therefore, Assyrian through and through, yeah. who's called Ashurbanipal. So he does that. Does he do that crazy thing that people do in dividing his kingdom in two between two sons and hoping that somehow it'll be all right? 
Kind of. I, I think that that um, Ashurbanipal is clearly number one king. Right. Um, and uh, but 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 Shamashumaukin is, is number two. He's yeah, and he's, the, and he's the elder brother, so I think he's a bit cross about that. Um, so that the, there are tensions there. Uh, it, so the yeah, so so um, the idea is that it's going to be a kind of double monarchy. But as you say, I mean, these things never work out. So Babylon is being rebuilt. Marduk yep. has been returned to the Esagila. Um, the, the the lake has been drained. They're starting to rebuild um, the, the 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 great central ziggurat, and and this basically is the model for the Tower of Babylon. So, Tower Babel. this process of re- yeah yeah sorry the Tower of Babel. So this is the process of rebuilding it. It doesn't work because in six five two the two brothers go to war, uh, and this is obviously a, a terrible decision on the part of Shamashuma Ukin because his brother basically has his Syrian war machine at his command. Um, and so inevitably uh, Babylon gets captured and Shamashuma Ukin's palace gets put on fire and he supposedly hurls himself into the flames. And this gets remembered by, uh, by Greek and Roman writers who, who call him Sardanapalus. Um, and Sardanapalus becomes this, he's remembered as this guy who uh, he, he, he's very transgender uh, he likes to kind of hang out with his concubines. He doesn't, can't be bothered with, um, you know, with, with fighting. Uh, and at the end, he kind of hurls himself into the flames. Byron writes a play about him. So um, that's Shamash done. He's over. Uh, yeah. Ashurbanipal, um, is he, is he in a mood to be merciful? No, he's not. I'm, I'm reading it now. <laughs> I, fed, read it? I fed their corpses cut into small pieces to dogs, pigs, vultures, the birds of the sky and the fish of the ocean. He's not yeah. messing about, is he? No. And do you know what? He's he's the intellectual one. He's so he's right. he's got his he's got his library. He's, he's the philosopher king. <laughs> he's the philosopher king, yeah. <laughs> and he's chopping his enemies up into little bits and feeding them to but dogs that might and just vultures. Be, but that just might be a figure of speech, Tom. Might I don't think so. I don't, don't think you, so. You think no. he did it? He's fed them to yes. fish. That's what yes. he's claiming. Yes, I, I think so. Okay. Well, Tom, that's been a brilliant insight into the world of Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar. And again, if you haven't listened to our episode on Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, it was in January. And what can they expect to hear in it, Tom? Um, yes. Yeah, so that episode, basically, it goes from when Ashurbanipal, the last great Assyrian king, dies, um, Assyria implodes. And one of the victorious powers that dismembers the Assyrian Empire is this revived Babylonian Empire. So that's the Empire of Nebuchadnezzar, the empire that everyone kind of sees in their mind's eye when they think of Babylon, the Ishtar Gate and, and all that kind of stuff. And he is the king who sacks Jerusalem. Uh, he's the, the the king who is basically presiding over the Tower of Babel that then gets kind of appears in, in the book of Genesis um, and supposedly builds the Hanging Gardens, although whether he does or not, you will find out in uh, in that episode so if you haven't heard it it is episode number 145 in the rest is history podcast feed uh and if you have heard it very good <laughs> and, and uh, thanks for coming back for another bite of babylon um so it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him bye-bye Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.